Oh, we got a lot of great feedback on the uh, the cold open this week. I was very yeah, happy that was awesome. That. Man, I fucking oh love that. That was, Brendan's, was very Brendan's good. English accent was amazing. It was so good. Like I I did the whole thing and I sent it to him. I didn't even try to do a fucking English accent. <laughs> he was like, hey, uh, I can actually do a pretty good uh, British accent. It's okay if I give it a try. And I was like. Pfft. Brendan just trying to put his grubby finger to prints all over my work. But no, no, it was fucking great. I seriously yeah. thought you guys found an English person. <laughs> <laughs> all that hanging around Bobby Watson it paid off. This is your premium show for the week. How are you guys doing? Of course, I'm Will Meneker. With me as always, Felix. Hello, everybody. And Matt. Hi, folks. Like I said, this is uh, this is your premium show for this week. And we got an interview with you uh, with uh, Alexander Zaychik, uh, author of The Gilded Rage. Uh, Matt and I talked to him about uh, Trump voters. Um, again, uh, Matt... Uh, sat out our Skayhill interview, and now uh, Felix sits out this interview. We have to keep things fair, have to keep it even. Just want to make sure everyone, you know, everything balances out. Uh, I did not sit it out because uh, I overslept. I would never do something like that, ever. It's never happened with the show. I skipped out because I do not agree with books. I think they are stupid, and I think they're haram. Boko haram. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're coming off a, you know, an hour plus interview with Jeremy Scahill uh, that took a deep dive into, you know, foreign policy and the Middle East. And then we did another, you know, we went about a half an hour with uh, Zychik on, you know, uh, the sort of the down and outs, the deplorables, the, the Donald Trump supporters. And, you know, these are two, I thought, informative, serious interviews, but... To be quite honest, I, I need to have some fun. Da- Daddy needs some time for himself. And we're going to do that directly after the Zychik interview with a Chapo reading series where we check in with our boy, David French. Please stick around. The title of the article is The Price I've Paid for Opposing Donald Trump. <laughs> we are here with Alexander Zychik, who is the author of The Gilded Rage. And, uh... Alex, thanks for being with us. We wanted to talk to you. I mean, you wrote this book basically about your experiences covering the Republican primary and Trump supporters in particular. And I want to talk to you about your perspective on Trump and the people who uh, are his diehards or his constituency and how they are being covered in the media. Because I guess like to me, like, I've noticed that there's, like, this new genre of article that I see written all the time that sort of attempts to explain Trump to sort of a liberal readership and sort of explain his supporters. And there's this kind of push and pull between whether they should be respected or not respected enough or just written off completely. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, what, what do you make of all this? Yeah, I mean, that... Uh, shortcoming it was sort of the impetus behind um, doing this book, which is kind of an oral history of uh, Trump's primary steamroll. Basically, the idea was to sort of let people explain themselves 
as a way to kind of get away from these explainer pieces written by people who uh, don't have a whole lot in common with the people who are trying to explain uh, and often don't even spend that much time with them. Uh, so the idea was to sort of say, you know, what would Studs Terkel do if he had, you know, not a lot of time and not a lot of money? Uh, so I just kind of went out and, and let people explain their own politics. And what I found pretty quickly in doing that was a lot of the media treatments attempts to kind of answer in one quick explainer piece is just not going to work. It's, it's just not monocausal. You're not going to be able to dump everything into one neat little bucket of, you know, racial anxiety or racial animus versus, you know, economic, um, you know, uh, despair. I mean, it's like extremely complex sort of <laughs> human, um, uh, things going on here that are often very textured and they vary wildly from community to community and from person well, person to person. I, I mean, I think you touch on like the, the split, at least in how it's being covered in uh, sort of like the conventional mainstream or liberal media is this push and pull between an explanation based on racial anxiety and kind of uh, wounded nationalism and economic grievances. Yeah. I mean, what I was trying to say was, I guess it's just a long way of saying it, is it's a false dichotomy. And as long as that is kind of the framework for these pieces, they're going to fail and they're going to start arguments that are neither all that helpful or illuminating. Um, I mean, it, it kind of sounds like a cop out to say people are more complicated than that, but they are. I mean, I, it's almost like a novel would be more useful in sort of explaining <laughs> the Trump voter in, <laughs> in Greene County, uh, Pennsylvania, as opposed to you know some kid working at Vox making ninety thousand dollars a year. So, what like what what are some of the things that you discovered spending time with uh, with Trump supporters and these people hanging out with them? Like you said, uh, just you know hanging just like sort of experiencing their lives like what's being missed or like what did, did you discover anything that was sort of a common denominator or that can be uh like explained like what's being missed here i should say right away that i did meet just straight up blunt force racist you know yahoos of like you know bill maher's fantasy um caricature <laughs> like those people exist no, no doubt about it i met a lot of them um but I don't think that they were the majority. I haven't broken them down, you know, statistically. And I met dozens, over 100 people that I spent time with. Um, but generally speaking, extreme anger towards uh, economic cultural elites, um, which didn't always translate into hatred of all rich people, you know, one contradiction in their support of Donald Trump. But hatred, anger towards elites, sense of betrayal. Uh, everyone mentioned PC, sort of. PC culture run amok, but not just as a sort of argument that they should be allowed to use bad words, but more this sort of understanding that PC was like this broader attempt to marginalize them from politics because they were raised by someone with a little bubba in them, and maybe they have a little bubba in them. And this this real kind of understanding that the people who are accusing them of XYZ and using brandishing sort of political correctness as a weapon themselves really don't have much to stand on. I mean, <laughs> Hillary Clinton's married to a guy named Bubba for a reason, right? I mean, like, they know that these, these suburban Democrats uh, really are not these, like, pristine angels and uh, that there's racism among Democrats and upper-middle-class people. So, so that was a common denominator, um, a sense of just falling 
uh, a sense of decay in the communities that they grew up in, even if people are doing well, this is what those average income pieces fail to understand. Even if somebody does have a decent pension because they came up during the golden age, even if they own a small business, people are still parts of communities and they see their nephews and their kids and their friends' sons on smack or unemployed or underemployed or struggling. I mean, you know, 70%, depending on which numbers you look at, of everyone in this country is living paycheck to paycheck. So even if you're doing okay, the idea that that should be the determining factor in how you, you vote, and therefore it's only about race, is absurd. Nobody thinks like that. And do you think, like, the, the sort of the, the, the PC issue, like, I think it speaks to this idea that, like like you said, more than just sort of words you can't or can't say, I think, like... It's more like this sense that it's a kind of um, a code of behavior or set of manners that marks you as either in the club or out of the club. And it sort of polices the boundaries of that. And these people have the definite sense that they are out of the club. Uh, Yeah, there was a great line by sort of David Wong uh, of Cracked in the piece he did trying to explain the truth. Oh, I just read that. I just read that one. Yeah, Yeah. he said Trump was a brick through the window. And and that's a great kind of image for how they a lot of the people I talked to saw Trump. Um, sort of like a brick through that window of that restaurant that they're being told to stay the hell out of. And, and that led me to think another image that's, that might even be better is like a key on the BMW because that's a longer <laughs> screech and it makes a nasty noise and it drives them nuts. And the, the more Trump did crazy and said crazy shit that drove these people nuts, the more they loved him. That's what a lot of people don't understand. They're like, how could they continue to vote for him after all this stuff? It's like, that makes it even better. That makes the key scratch even higher pitched. And that's so much of what's going on here is just like a a revolt against these people. And they they feel um, insulted and it's sort of the economics are mixed into it and there's racial stuff streaked through it. Absolutely. It's all sort of marbleized, but it's marbleized in in the form of a brick (laughs) that they were trucking through that window. That's sort of the dominant theme that I got all across the country. And I focused on six states, I should say, that's sort of self-selected. The people I talked to, I focused on depressed communities along the border in California, New Mexico, and Arizona, and West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, sort of classic Rust Belt and collapsed coal towns. Matt, you're from Wisconsin. I am, yeah. And uh, and yes, there is a very strong, uh, outside of the, of the cities, there is a very strong uh, hostility to perceived elites and all that stuff. And I mean, I'm from a town that's sort of emblematic of that, Manitowoc. It's like this 30,000... Person town, and it used to be a manufacturing hub, and now it's basically uh, dying, and it's you know got more bars than any other city in the country per capita, or at least it was when I was coming up. Um, but it's also, I mean, you can't get away from the racial element as well, like the way that people in uh, Wisconsin outside of the cities think of <clears throat> Milwaukee specifically. Uh, it's it's just like a full-on racial panic at all times. Uh, and I think that part of it is just that, that you know, these are relatively isolated communities, at least the ones that I'm familiar with in Wisconsin. And so really all of their interactions with people from another race are just these these nightmares that they've kind of, that they collectively have created and shared as opposed to any actual interaction or knowledge. Uh, but yeah, and there are two things that kind of reinforce themselves. I got I, a question I had was the in the last week or so there's been this debate about to what degree are Trump voters reachable 
by a hypothetical like left wing economics based uh, pitch, electoral pitch. Uh, do you like and what and having talked to these people, like what what percentage, I guess, or what what to what degree would they be amenable if someone were to pitch like a Sanders esque or even further or or more explicitly hostile to establishments, but like. In, instead of going with cultural shit and blaming immigrants, me, being more specifically anti-capitalist, like, is there? Do you think there's any kind of way that they would respond to that, or, or not? Yeah, that is the question, uh, and pretty much the motivating one for this project. Um, I mean, I, I looked at it not just as a sort of journalistic, um, literary one, but as a political one. That's exactly what I was interested in finding out. And the fact that you used what percentage of them shows that you have a better frame of it than most of the people who are getting paid a lot of money to ask this question because usually it's are they or are they not as if it's this monolithic block and right. that's precisely right like what percentage of them are gettable or in Clinton's unfortunate phrasings uh, redeemable and I don't have a hard number for you but I'm going to say based on my you know admittedly you know brief amount of time doing nothing but talking to these people I'm going to say about a third maybe that's optimistic but uh, there was, I would say, about a third of the people I talked to who gave Bernie Sanders a very, very good listen before they decided to, to back Trump. A lot of them were former Democrats. Um, a lot of them, you know, were in some kind of public assistance who were not, you know, sort of the free market Stephen Moore tax plan wing of the Republican Party. <laughs> and they're pissed off and they're thinking in terms of system for the first time. And they're struggling with it because they've, they've grown up in maybe conservative communities. They've been drenched in conservative propaganda their whole lives. This idea of there's no such thing as free. You know, maybe they grew up with that in their family or talk radio. But they're struggling to kind of break through that because they know there's this tension there and, and Trump kind of represented a breakthrough for a lot of them. I mean, this was a guy who basically came out saying, we're not going to let wall street eat you and privatize social security. And, you know, I mean, I don't think he meant any of it. I don't think Trump really cares, but this, this is what he said. And this is what a lot of people were responding to. Um, and the idea that an attempt shouldn't be made, uh, to reach these people because they're all, Irredeemable because look at my charts, which is what the Vox guy said the other week. What's his name? Uh, <laughs> Dylan Matthews. I mean, what? <laughs> like, what? Why? What alternative do we have? Like, you know, I mean, if we're going to build a real sort of movement in this country, why would you, you know, ignore millions? Let's say 13 million people voted for Trump in the primaries. Let's say you can get five of them, four of them, three of them. That's three million class allies. I mean, that's a lot. I mean, that's not that's not nothing at all. I, and I think part it, of it is a lot. And it not only takes away from Trump 2.0, whatever comes down the line and takes a huge chunk of flesh out of that. It also ballasts the left center of gravity on our side. If you can make that leap and you can bring them in. And, and I think and, that a lot of what they're what there's either an implicit or in some of them explicit argument in those pieces that say you can't do it you can't appeal to them is that in order to appeal to them you would also have to like drop a commitment to anti-racism like you'd have Absolutely to be not okay true. yeah it's like we have to like they would have to say fuck black lives matter or something in addition to offering a more comprehensive socialist vision and yeah that just seems like there's no reason for that to be assumed like that's why you talk about like 
percentages because that's why they want to make it all or nothing. Because, yes, to get all of them, because a large chunk, as you're talking about, are committed racists, you would have to, like, go along with their entire worldview. But that is an absurd thing, and that's not how uh, coalitions work in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, something that someone has talked about, I have in front of me, but I mean, imagine if the labor movement had said, oh, well, we can't go near that factory. There's there's racism there or that industry. I mean, <laughs> no. And, and the fact is, in the process of getting people involved in these movements, they change. They become influenced. And, and you know, I mean, in some of Sud Sterkle's books, he, he got some great people talking about that experience and working in particular, which is my favorite Turkle book. I, I definitely think we need to reach out and unionize the racism industry in this country. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was, I, I'm working down at the racism store and they yeah. got me. They, I'm got not getting paid for overtime. I don't get bathroom breaks. It's fucking bullshit. One last point on, on, on talking to these people. One thing I realized is it's often not the ideas. It's the language. And so many people were brought up in the Cold War and they're so sort of influenced by, you know, maybe listening to Rush Limbaugh that, you know, they have triggers with socialism and Medicaid. But, you know, they love their badger care. Don't touch their badger care. Just don't call it Medicaid. And maybe if you had a Sanders type, not not to make it all about him, but if you had candidates, if you had people talking about the same kind of worldview, only maybe just didn't use the S word as much in conversation, I think you'd have a lot more success. And often people were just stumbling on words, not not policies, not plans. Is there anyone like, you know, in, in your book or just in, in doing this work that, that, that stands out in your mind, yet like a specific conversation or, or, or person that, that sticks out in your mind? Yeah, um, probably the two conversations um, that I like the best. Uh, one was with a, a vet in Phoenix, this guy Anthony Holston, who uh, came back from Iraq and Afghanistan with a lot of physical and emotional and psychological injuries. Um, and his brother killed himself soon after getting back. They, they served together and then he tried to kill himself and he had a you know, pretty nightmare experience dealing with the VA, um, hated John McCain, hated George Bush, basically gave a read on Iraq that could have come straight from, you know, Noam Chomsky and, uh, all of his buddies, they didn't all make the book cause I didn't have that much room in the bar where I met these guys at a sort of biker vet bar in Phoenix, North Phoenix, they were all nodding their head along. Like they, they were angry and they wanted the VA system not to be privatized, but to work better. And they supported universal, uh, single payer. They didn't understand why everyone didn't have access to healthcare. They didn't understand why there were, you know, homeless shelters getting shut down in Phoenix on, you know, health code violations. They were angry and they were sort of, uh, you know, very reachable for someone offering, uh, you know, a sort of humane socialist kind of alternative. And uh, I think about those guys a lot when I hear people just slag off anyone that voted for Trump, um, you know, the sort of Bill Maher being one extreme end of that. And uh, another guy in West Virginia comes to mind who was an anti-coal activist. It's a guy named Ed Wiley. He actually walked from West Virginia to Washington, D.C. as part of a campaign to get a, a plant shut down that was threatening his daughter's grammar school. And he formed alliances with um, schools in the Bronx, public schools in the Bronx that were, you know, 100 percent black and brown. And this is, you know, a good old boy from West Virginia, who, you know, probably grew up with, 
Confederate flag on his truck. And he, over the course of sort of his political activity, um, trying to protect his community, formed these incredible coalitions. And he's one of the most amazing grassroots activists West Virginia has ever seen. And this was told to me by the guy that founded Earth First, who's now working on mountaintop removal um, actions in West Virginia. So these are the kind of people that exist in Trump land. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to replace one stereotype with another that's as inaccurate. But I'm just saying it's uh, honeycombed and there's a lot of surprises among them. And a lot of these people, I think, if given a chance and with the right kind of movement that they could find space, you know, could find space for them. um, You know, I I wouldn't mind having them by my side. That's for sure. Uh, I guess I have one question. Um, I guess I don't know if it's a question so much. Uh, I think... The thing about Trump that in addition to his appeal as this figure who is against the status quo and against elites, uh, did you get any sense of people responding to him just as a basically as a uh, as what he is, a game show host, as a personality? The idea that people are there is something new and exciting about like taking traditional ideas of what constitutes politics and sort of overthrowing them in favor of entertainment. The idea that like people are alienated from a political process and then are amenable to just like turning it into like a TV show, basically somebody who's going to be entertaining. Uh, Richard Dawson in in the running. (laughs) Exactly. Basically. Runners have three hours. They've got to go through all four game plots. Three hours or less, and they're going to need every second, because you know who's on their tail? Who? And you know what happens then? What? But I'll be as for Trump as entertainer. Sure, people remembered, you know, him on the TV show, and they knew he was a celebrity, and they, they resonated with that to an extent, but but not as much as the fact that he was just dragging that key across the the D and the Democratic Beamer. Um, you know, that was the main thing. It's the fact that he was a celebrity was just you know sugar on top. But I, I, I really don't think that would have been enough. I mean, like you mentioned earlier, they sort of like the. The, they, don't, they don't like elites or like rich people, but not all rich people. Obviously, Trump is a rich person and he's rich in a very particular and vulgar way. Is that like is his particular style of being rich also appealing because he does he does seem to thumb his nose at other more correct rich people who are, you know, more staid and boring? Yeah. Yeah. I think there is a certain believability to his claim that, you know, he builds these skyscrapers but eats with the uh – construction workers out back and he knows how to kind of talk to them and is more comfortable with them he definitely does eat mcdonald's yeah, every day yeah that's and true also there's the whole producerism thing in this country where you know he builds things it's concrete it's steel even if it's chinese um as opposed to you know lloyd blankfein who's just shifting numbers around um for him and his buddies to the detriment of everybody else this entire campaign in terms of that element of it that dynamic between the two types of rich people Anybody who watched Caddyshack could tell you how this is going to turn out. Because <laughs> yeah. he's Rodney Dangerfield showing up. Absolutely, uh, at, yeah. At, at I was just fucking Bushwood and uh, Judge Smales, like first it was Jeb. Totally. And now, you know, Hillary Clinton is his wife or whatever, you know. 
Yeah. Uh, you want to you want to fat bucks the hard way? You know, <laughs> who, who is the good guy in that movie? You know. Yeah. Yeah, Trump is kind of like a, a one-man uh, buddy comedy of uh, Dangerfield and Andrew Dice Clay, something yeah. like that. <laughs> Again, this is uh, Alexander Zaychik, and the book is The Gilded Rage. Alex, thanks for talking to us, man. Yeah, thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. Yankee 99 what are your coordinates? 020, zero zero, flight level 15, vehicle for lease point, Echo Bravo 1. Move in and check it out. Roger, moving in. Riot in progress. Approximately 1,500 civilians. No weapons evident. Proceed with Plan Alpha. Eliminate anything moving. I said the crowd is unarmed. There are lots of women and children down there. All they want is food, for God's sake. As you were, Richard. Proceed with Plan Alpha. All rioters must be eliminated. The hell with you. I will not fire on helpless people. Abort missions. We return back to base. Lieutenant Sanders, do you copy? Affirmative. Take command, detain Richard, and proceed as ordered. Richard, what the fuck is that? Get him! Ah! Ah! Richard, you're gonna fry for this. And I'll see you in hell. All right. We are back, and as promised... It's time for the Chapo reading series. You guys ready? Oh, yeah. So fucking ready. <laughs> I've specifically instructed Matt and Felix to, to blot this article out of their thoughts. If they saw it, someone share it, just not to click on it, so this can be as fresh as possible. I don't want to big it up too much, you know, f- you know, build up expectations too much, but I'm just going to say uh, this one goes to a dark place. It goes to a pretty dark uh, timeline. Um, of course, we, we remember David French from uh, previous episodes about um, how Prince was overrated, uh, or at least compared to the troops, and about how uh, what the, the, he doesn't want men emailing his wife while he is at war. Um, what were some other David French hits we've talked about on this show? Uh, Don't Call Me a Cuck, which was actually the first uh, version of Don't Call to Comeback. Don't call it a cookback. Oh, yeah. And then also we talked about his um, flirtation with being uh, Bill Crystal's, you know, uh, Judas Goat uh, crash test dummy candidate uh, to run against Trump. Yes. Before Um, Evan McMullen did it. And now because this dumbass uh, passed it up because he couldn't handle just a little razzing on Twitter. Now it looks like Evan McMullen is going to be the one to sop up those six juicy Utah electoral votes and become the first third-party candidate since George Wallace to secure an electoral vote in a presidential election and become history, literal history. Evan McMullen will never accomplish another thing for the rest of his life. No one will care about him, but forever, in every Wikipedia article about the 2016 election when they put that fucking map up, Utah is going to be in some weird other color. Trump will be red, Hillary will be blue, and then you'll get like orange or green or whatever in Utah, and people will be like, what the fuck happened? Evan McMullen happened, and that could have been David French if he wasn't such a bitch. (laughs) David, uh, David, it could have been you. I actually disagree. I don't think David French could have done it. Okay, what is the biggest thing about Mormons? Uh, They like plural marriage. Some will say that they stopped doing this, but they actually didn't. They all have secret wives. Uh, 
Meanwhile, fucking David French can barely handle one wife. Uh, he even <laughs> maintain his marriage. He has to uh, put a chastity belt on his modem. <laughs> they would have outright rejected him. Uh, this is good because, you know, uh, this article here is really his magnum opus because it returns to all of these themes in an incredible way. So I present to you David French's article. This is from October 21st. Uh, the price I've paid for opposing Donald Trump. Spoiler alert, he's uh, still has his freedom and job. <laughs> yeah, but the, the, me, the memes, the memes will. The memes. My God, the memes. It's kind of like the movie Cry Freedom if uh, Stephen Biko was sent a very rude frog instead of in prison. The Afrikaner frog, man. The frog has just uh, revoked his diplomatic immunity. <laughs> uh, the subhead to this article is Trump's alt-right trolls have subjected me and my family to an unending torrent of abuse that I wouldn't wish on anyone. <laughs> Folks, don't you hate when that happens? Oh, it sucks. It's the worst. <laughs> this is the first sentence. I distinctly remember the first time I saw a picture of my then seven-year-old daughter's face in a gas chamber. Starting off strong? Uh, excellent. It was the evening of September 17th, 2015. Why does he remember the exact date? Yeah, he's like Rain Man, but for getting owned. <laughs> I was going to say he's like Dr. Manhattan. June 8th, 2005. My wife goes on Christian Mingle in an incognito world. <laughs> I had just posted a short item to the corner calling out notorious Trump ally Ann Coulter for aping the white nationalist language and rhetoric of the so-called alt-right. Within minutes, the tweets came flooding in. My youngest daughter is African-American, adopted from Ethiopia, and in alt-right circles, that's an unforgivable sin. It's called race cucking or raising the enemy. I saw images of my daughter's face in gas chambers with a smiling Trump in a Nazi uniform preparing to press a button and kill her. Okay, now, I just need to say a caveat here. This actually is not funny. I'm not saying that this is funny that happened to his daughter in particular, um, just because it's funny that uh, he's writing this article. Uh, this in and of itself um, is, is not amusing and, uh, or cool or good. Right, uh, it's have we covered have I covered my ass enough so far? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's heartbreaking and terrible that that happened to his daughter. Uh, but anything they said to David specifically about David specifically is knee slapping good. She Sorry. continues. The alt right unleashed on my wife Nancy claiming that she had slept with black men while I was deployed to Iraq and that I love to watch while she had sex with, quote, black bucks. Which People is ridiculous <laughs> because I hated watching that. And <laughs> yeah, you, you don't know David French if you think he was enjoying his wife fucking other men. He fucking hates it. When we both publicized some of the racist attacks, I in the National Review and Nancy in the Washington Post, things took a far more ominous turn. Late the next evening, while Nancy was, fortunately, offline attending a veterans charity event in D.C., the darker quarters of the alt-right found her Pathios blog. Several different accounts began posting images and GIFs of extreme violence in her comment section. 
Click on a post and scroll down, and you'll see pictures of black men shooting other black men, close-up images of suicides, gifts of grisly executions, the kinds of psyche-scarring things that one can't unsee. Had I not deployed to Iraq and witnessed death up close, the images would have shocked me. Where the hell? Yeah, where David, you were, you were... Was, okay. <laughs> he he joined up again when his 50s in the JAG Corps, okay? I don't yeah. know what he saw over there, but he wasn't kicking down doors in fucking Fallujah, that's for sure. He watched uh, the Rob Zombie movie, House of a Thousand Corpses. <laughs> it was awful. I mean, some some gave a little, some gave all. David gave all. I quickly got on the phone with Nancy and told her not to look at her website and got busy deleting comments and blocking IP addresses. But in the meantime, a few friends and neighbors had seen the posts. Next Sunday, friends from church approached, expressing concern, not just for our safety, but for theirs as well. We live in a community <laughs> where the, most of the... Because they're the fucking... They're the weak bladdered gated community motherfuckers who have to take a Xanax before they go downtown to see a fucking Broadway show. Because they're terrified of everything always. Well, he says, we live in a community where most of the streets have similar names, and it's common for UPS drivers, FedEx deliveries, and friends to end up at the wrong house. They interpreted the images as threats, and they didn't want anyone to drive into our neighborhood looking for the French's intent on turning image into reality. So coincidentally, all the uh, police uh, just pulled over black people in our neighborhood. Uh, (laughs) The entire time, we called the police on anyone who didn't look like they were from our neighborhood, which, you know, coincidentally, uh, you're here nor there. Felix, I, I, I had the exact same thought when he said, UPS drivers, FedEx deliveries sometimes go to the wrong building. Sometimes teenagers wearing suspicious clothing are walking home carrying Skittles and, and soda drinks that they shouldn't have. Uh, he says, it took days and hundreds of IP blocks and Twitter reports, but things finally calmed down. The racist images slowed from a flood to a trickle. I relaxed a bit at night, and life returned, I thought, to normal. I was wrong. Dun, dun, (laughs) dun. What do you think him relaxing a bit at night is like? Just gaming? Just gaming for an hour or so? No, he just plays Sid Meier's Civil War as the Confederacy. That's his (laughs) way to unwind. uh, David French, like, typically relaxing on a weekday night in a school night uh can't get too rowdy gotta take the kids to school is to enter the player lobby in world of warcraft and talk about how trans people are an abomination (laughs) maybe just take like a nice evening stroll to target and stand outside the bathroom with an ar-15 this wasn't he says this wasn't the beginning of the end of our trouble but rather the end of the beginning holy shit I share my family's story, not because we are unique or because our experience is all that extraordinary, but rather because it is depressingly, disturbingly ordinary ordinary this campaign season. The formula is simple. Criticize Trump, especially his connections to the alt-right, and the backlash will come. Eric Erickson experienced his own ordeal more than a month before we did. Uh, what was Eric Erickson's ordeal? Uh, they were out of fucking uh, hams. There wasn't yeah. hams in his no, refrigerator what, for him it's, to eat. It's, he went every time he goes to the grocery store and he sees the ham aisle. It's traumatizing because those are his slaughtered relatives. Uh, 
Eric Erickson, you guys are making fun of him, but actually he was the victim of a vicious alt-right hacking attack where they accessed his profile and uh, made him say horrible things about uh, pro-choice women and made him say that he would have killed Trayvon Martin and, uh, you know... Oh, do you remember when uh, people in abomination? Oh, wait, these are all things that Eric Erickson said. Oh, whoops. No, do you remember when? Uh, you remember when alt right, like sort of four chan trolls, hacked Eric Erickson and got him to publish that blog post where he called uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, David Souter a goat fucking child molester. Yeah, that was fucked up of them. But that was crazy because it was like years before the alt right even existed. They might have you guys. They might have a time machine. They might be more powerful than we even have thought. Um, it says, after Erickson disinvited Trump from his red state gathering, angry Trump supporters showed up at his house. A grown man yelled at his children at a store, condemning their father for opposing Trump. <laughs> Erickson wrote in the New York Times that his son is still fearful that Trump supporters will come back to their home. <laughs> I would honestly, I, I would pay almost any amount of money to see video footage of some fucking Trump supporting rube yelling at Eric Erickson and his family oh, at like the Target. Oh, it would Your dad's a traitor. This is what a coward looks like, young man. In March, writer Bethany Mandel related her own experience. After tweeting about Trump's anti-Semitic followers, she was called a slimy Jewess and told that she deserves the oven. Uh, it got worse. Uh, then he quotes from uh, this this argument, which is just, again, just more people bullying her online. It, it got worse from there. The same thing kept happening. Uh, the phenomenon got some attention in the spring when the Daily Beast reported not just on Mandel's experience, but also on Erickson, Rick Wilson's, and others. It just sort of seems like the common denominator here is like the biggest pieces of shit in the world are getting a slight taste of uh, the shit they've been shoveling out their entire miserable lives. I really like I look, I may disagree with guys like Rick Wilson and Eric Erickson, but uh, there is no room for racist trolling when these guys are trying to go back and forth in an intellectual discussion about how exactly they would have killed Michael Brown. <laughs> uh, French quotes he says an anti-defamation league report identified 800 journalists who've been targeted with anti-semitic tweets 10 journalists including NR's own Jonah Goldberg who have borne the brunt of the attacks and one my friend Ben Shapiro who's received a staggering amount of hate no not our not ben. boy now, not now, our baby okay. boy Benny the, the attacks I've received on me and my family have been despicable. I'm, I, I document all of them in my new book, Trayvon, the thug who couldn't shoot straight. <laughs> but I just want to, I want to quote here from the top 10 journalists who have received the bulk of this anti-Semitic hatred from the alt-right. Uh, let's go down this list here. Uh, the number one is Ben Shapiro, Jonathan Wiseman, Jonah Goldberg, no! Jake, Tap <laughs> Jake Tapper, Wolf Blitzer, Felix, Dana Schwartz, and then Bethany Mandel. Guys, I'm getting a phone call. Ring, ring. Oh, cool. Hello? I, I, okay, uh, hi, this is Jared Kushner from the New York <laughs> Observer. I heard you bring up Dana's name. She wrote a very hurtful open letter to me about uh, my, my father-in-law's supporters, and Dana <laughs> did not receive 
any anti-Semitic attacks. In fact, uh, you know, the the, 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 the the frog who is supposedly dressed up like Adolf Hitler is actually dressed up like Charlie Chaplin. And, <laughs> look, my father-in-law totally disapproves of the Holocaust, and he, in fact, has told me he would have built a hotel on the train tracks en route to Buchenwald to prevent the train from getting there. That is the kind of man my father-in-law is. Data, data, don't write, don't, don't write another open letter. <laughs> I can't, I'm, I'm, wow, I can't believe Jared Kushner knows who we are it's now. Amazing. We really are this big. We're getting bigger and bigger. Hey guys, I was just uh, jacking off. Uh, what did I miss? Anything? Uh, we got a phone call from the publisher of the New York Observer. It was pretty amazing. No shit, cool. I used to uh, write there. He... <laughs> I just like to point out about this list. Like, okay, uh, they're they're receiving all this hatred from from these you know alt right Nazis. Uh, ben Shapiro, uh, yeah, you're Rosenberg, but okay, Ben Shapiro and Jonah Goldberg, particularly between the two of them. Uh, if it were not for this election and they like alienated themselves by going never Trump from these same people, these are the same assholes who, who wrote an entire book about how liberals and Democrats are the real Nazis and that like the KKK would vote for the Democrats if they were still around. Yeah, but that's because yeah, it's just Trump like, is and a like Democrat. now all this shit is like, like, they, like they've been, uh, like again, doing this pseudo history for years now to absolve themselves of like, you know, the, the taint of any of this like right wing demagoguery or, or fascist uh, racism or whatever. And, and now like they got nothing left. Isn't yeah. But weird? you forget that Trump is a Democrat. Like yeah, that, that's lib. like uh, baseball crank. And those guys, like their problem with Trump is that he's a big government lip. So checkmate, bitch. I, um, so I'm kind of surprised that guys who spent 20 years saying that it's anti-Semitism to suggest that uh, uh, Palestinian babies cannot breathe in white phosphorus and exhale carbon dioxide is anti-Semitism. <laughs> it's almost like saying stuff like that just completely removes the meaning of words like that. Yeah, you're right, Felix. It's almost like these people have uh, cynically abused these terms so long that uh, they have no credibility and nor will they garner even a shred of sympathy when uh, someone does the exact same thing to them. It's almost like when this first started happening, I would just type in their ads to look at their mentions and laugh so hard that I would cry. <laughs> Back to David French, though. Uh, he says, why Shapiro? Because he represents the worst of all possible anti-Trumpers. He's a Jewish man who turned on the twin pillars of the alt-right Trump and Breitbart.com. Sometimes there's a man and then sometimes there's a boy and, and he stands up for what's right. <clears throat> he goes on. Uh, More victims are coming forward in a painful, vulnerable post commenter Mickey White writes about how the alt-right came after her and her family, triggering a mental health crisis. In the face of the abuse, she sought help, but help was slow to come. By the way, I like how the National Review has turned into medium for conservatives. <laughs> but the, uh, the yeah, quote from this shit. painful, vulnerable post is also funny. He says, I reached out to people I thought I could trust, and to this day, I'm not sure if that was the right thing to do. 
At times, I was desperate, though, as the trolling had increased from mere tweets to DMs from very random famous accounts. Then emails went out to people suggesting that I might harm myself, even though I'd indicated nothing of the sort. Anyone who responded to me would also be shamed or harassed. I was advised that I was about to be swatted. I contacted my local sheriff and eventually the FBI. As all of this was happening, the people behind these accounts made ominous threats toward a family member, my sister, the single most important person in the world to me. The fuse was lit. God, I'm amazed the FBI didn't do anything about this. Yeah, this is, like, the best time that any one of these people have... I mean, there is sort of, like, a confluence between never-Trumpers and Trump people because they're actually both reactionary assholes. Uh, it's like when Mark Dice called the police about the song Kill Trump. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if there's, like, a... If, like, you know, when police get done with a long day of destroying videotapes, they ever, like, get together and laugh about uh, fielding calls from conservative writers about getting DMs. <laughs> The abuse is so common that I've lost count of other reporters and writers who've told me, often in confidence, of troubling late-night incidents at their homes, or of tweets and other messages that went far beyond garden-variety Twitter trolling into disturbing threats and sometimes horrifying images. Uh, it's Halloween, David. People are just sending you spooky uh, gr- <laughs> greeting cards. Like, I like the idea of him like going out of his house and his neighbor has, like, ghouls and, like, skeletons hanging from the tree, and, like, he just gets really scared that, like, they found him and are threatening him. I can't wait till David perforates a kid in a fucking scream mask. <laughs> He's like, oh, I thought, oh, I thought they that found was my home. He, he goes on and talks about how it never seemed to stop, and it got worse after he flirted with his stupid presidential run. And then he talks about uh, the mainstream media got into it by, uh, you know, capping that... Uh, section from Nancy's book about how uh, he told her not to email men or go on Facebook, which really doesn't have anything to do with the alt-right, but he's like he's shoehorning this bit of embarrassment into this other larger cauldron of abuse that he's getting. But he says, um, online Trump world took that tweet and transformed it into a campaign of harassment directly against me and my wife, all of it which continues to this day. And it says the notion that she can no longer open her Twitter timeline without seeing men boasting about having sex with her while I was gone, or even while I'm home, is intolerable. It's relentless, and often it gets under her very thick skin. Of course, no story would be complete without a truly ominous threat. The moment we landed back at home after I declined to run for president. <laughs> yeah, yeah. considering it in the first okay. place yeah yeah <laughs> like yeah yeah when you called that big press conference to the national media and was like ladies and gentlemen i'm sorry after much consideration i'm not running for president and then all the journalists immediately ran out of the room and were like get me the washington bureau french is not doing it it was like no that was uh in newsrooms across the country uh, editors were running into the room and screaming, does Chris Elliott have leukemia now? <laughs> <laughs> he says, uh, um, yeah, someone, uh, she turned her phone on to see an email from a Trump fan, a veteran who informed her that he knew the business end of a gun and told her directly that she, she should shut her mouth or he'd take action. 
We contacted law enforcement, she got her handgun carry permit, and life returned to the new normal of daily Twitter harassment until the day this month when an angry voice actually broke into a phone conversation between my wife and her elderly father, screaming about Trump and spewing profanities. My wife was on her iPhone, her father was on a landline. That launched a brief, anxious search inside my father-in-law's home for a potential intruder and yet another call to law enforcement. If someone was if the call wasn't coming from inside the house, someone hacked this call and like just like sort of injected their voice into like a, a three-way phone call. Does that happen? Is that a thing? Because I think uh, she was just talking to her probably bewildered, deranged, senile father who just started screaming obscenities about Trump, and she got um, disturbed by it. I mean, it. that happens all the time when you incorrectly IP block the Thunder Router. Sorry, I lost my place here. He says, uh, he goes on to say, like, you know, it's be- online hate has become so common that it's almost become a badge of honor to get, you know, uh, disgusting abuse from certain corners of the Internet. But he says, but to be honest, it's miserable. There's nothing at all rewarding, enjoyable or satisfying about seeing man after man brag in graphic terms that he has slept with your wife. This is uh, There's nothing I mean, at all enjoyable or rewarding about it. Of course, uh, I uh, I'm going to disagree with that. I'm going to say no. Just I'm going to defend uh, the cuckold community and say it is very very enjoyable and Yeah, rewarding. that's very uh close-minded of David there. That could be a lot of fun. Yeah, what the fuck, David? Um you know I like what David said about it being a badge of honor. Uh, it's almost as if he is confusing a purple nurple for a purple heart. <laughs> it's unsettling to have a phone call interrupted, watch images of murder flicker across your screen, and read threatening emails. It's sobering to take your kids out to the farm to make sure they're both proficient with handguns in case an intruder comes when they're home alone. Okay, he was talking about his wife got the concealed carry permit. Now he's training his kids in firearms and inculcating with the idea that they're surrounded by unseen enemies who of which at any point could like in- invade their homes or community. I can see no way in which will this end badly. No, look, this is all very normal stuff and like the the best thing, the absolute best thing you can do if you're insulted on the internet is uh, to teach your kids how to kill and uh, <laughs> obsessively look at everything. I'm sorry, Dad. I thought you were Trill Himmler. <laughs> I have to laugh. Everyone take a drink there. It's uh, funny to him. It's actually uh, funny to me. No, he's saying it's not funny, but he says, I have to laugh when people accuse me of opposing Trump because it gets, because it somehow makes me rich or because I'm currying favors with guests at, quote, elite cocktail parties that I never actually attend, that I'm never actually invited to. Sick. Edit. Two weeks ago, Nancy and I were enjoying lunch with friends after church. My son's football coach asked if things had calmed down after the tumult of the summer. I grabbed my phone and said, let's see. And I opened my Twitter mentions. 
<laughs> I opened my menchies to my church friends. This is something normal people do. Yeah. <laughs> I laughed at the and first. Now one. a reading from uh, David's menchies. Everyone. A standard profane rant, calling me a traitor for opposing Trump. But when my wife looked, her face twisted up in shock. They, there they were, just below. More tweets from men aimed directly at her. She burst into tears. So no, things have not calmed down. And I'm always amused when people tell me that I belong to the Never Trump because it makes me feel good about myself. There's nothing that gives me pleasure about this election season. But if I can do anything to expose and oppose this latest debasement of our politics and culture and to defend my wife and daughter, then at least I will have purpose. Scene, the end. I want to take objection to one thing at the end. Uh, when he says he doesn't enjoy like the consequences of being never Trump, knowing what I know about David, I now think that he couldn't possibly oppose Trump on policy grounds because David's a fucking absolute ghoul and creep himself. But <laughs> what do we know about David? He maybe likes to be abused, maybe likes to be humiliated. Therefore, we can conclude that the never Trump movement is just the all the conservatives tricking uh, tricking the public into ritualistically humiliating them. So on November 8th, they can just let out the biggest fucking 21 rope jizz stream they've ever had. (laughs) This is my theory. Just arching torrents. Of reproductive mucus. Absolutely. I just like this idea that, like, he's talking the whole article about how traumatized his wife was by all these men uh, talking about how they're gonna, how they've been fucking her while he's uh, away or sitting in a corner. And he's like, she's so traumatized by this. So what am I gonna do after church? Uh, just open up my Twitter menchies and show it to her in front of uh, our, our our deacon or whatever. Yeah, it's almost like he gets off on being humiliated yeah, it's like in this front is sort of, of other people. Play. That's weird. I think we can leave it there. We've uh, we've recorded a, a ton about this, and I think that'll that'll just about do it for uh, the premium show this week. What do you say? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it's a good one. Uh, after this, uh, are you guys okay if I show you guys some uh, abusive DMs I got, and uh, then we could take turns jacking each other off? Uh, yeah, I'm with it. I'm with it. Oh, yeah, sure. okay. I hope we're not recording right now when I said this. Uh, No, no, I pressed stop. Cool. It's all good. Okay, guys, till next time. Till next time. Bye. Bye. This is no game. Standing in the dark, I swear I you calling my name. And I know things have changed. No pain, no gain Something in your eyes just told me that this nightmare would end And I had found a plan Shouted from the
Yeah. 